Hello, everyone. You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. I'm your host, Daniela Lake, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Juliana Friend from the Department of Anthropology. Welcome to the show, Juliana. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't you tell us what you're studying in anthropology? Yeah, so I um, am a sociocultural anthropologist, and I'm interested in gender and social media use and health in West Africa. Um, and in particular, I my dissertation research focuses on the impact of digital media use on the Senegalese ethic of sutra, which means discretion or modesty, um, and using that as kind of a window into some broader trends in uh, gender relations um, and national identity. So when did you first become interested in gender and media? Yeah, so I have been doing research in Senegal um, for a long time. I started out uh, researching social media um, and language politics. So what, what, what was happening to the relationship between French, the colonial language, and Wolof, the indigenous lingua franca, with the growth of social media, um, where you know people kind of for the first time were expressing themselves in writing um, in a language that had never been taught in schools, um, namely Wolof. And so the media interest had been there for a while. Um, but then I first got interested in gender and media when uh, actually for a seminar at Berkeley, I stumbled upon um, this sex education online curriculum targeting Senegal called Click Info Ado, and it has all of these uh, kind of cartoon episodes and like worksheets about all these topics related to sex education. Um, and I got like really captivated by this, um, and especially this one episode where it's basically teaching young people like the proper way to use the internet. And it kind of dawned on me that like teaching young people how to be kind of, you know, modern sexual subjects was inter was basically the same thing as teaching them how to be kind of modern internet using subjects and especially girls kind of investment in girls becoming, uh, you know, good internet users kind of, uh, became almost like a symbol of national progress. Um, and so, but I was curious, like, is this just kind of a, you know, figment of the internet or is this actually like used in practice? And so I was able to do some uh, preliminary fieldwork in Senegal and was curious, like, is this website, you know, uh, just something I talk about in my like grad school seminar um, or something used in real life. And it turned out it is used in these adolescent health centers um, around the country. So I actually got to kind of see it in action and how it intersected with the lives, the everyday lives of, of young women. Yeah. And so how did you choose Senegal specifically? So there's kind of a academic reason and a personal reason. And they kind of intersect, they, they more or less intersect. Um, yeah, so kind of on the academic front, Senegal interested me because it has, you know, for a small country, 
Um, it has a really interesting and important place in US foreign policy um, and international aid worlds. Um, it's known as being uh, quite politically stable um, on the continent, um, never had a, a coup though. There, there has been some, some notable political unrest um, in uh, this past spring um, and known for having a form of Islam that, um, you know, um, that uh, kind of U.S. foreign policy makers see, see it as kind of like a, a beacon of, um, you know, kind of liberal values as, you know, is particularly constructed in the West. Um, so, so that kind of made it a really interesting place to study kind of investment in uh, health and international aid. But then on the, the personal front, um, and I have to give a shout out to Dauda Kamara, who um, was one of my early French teachers. Um, he is from Senegal and took a group of us there for two weeks when I was 16. Um, and just to kind of explore and be tourists really. Uh, and I, I met a young woman you know, my age, I was 16, she was 14. Um, we kind of bonded and then started exchanging letters every year um, for five years. Uh, and then I had an opportunity in undergrad to do international research. And I was like, I wonder what, what Nabu is up to and like how our lives have changed. And so, uh, so you know, that kind of friendship was really the, the start of my relationship with the country. Oh, that's really sweet. Um, are you guys still in touch? Yeah, we are. Um, I, I have not seen her in a while, uh, but I mean, WhatsApp has made it a lot easier. We've gone from like hand-delivered letters by people traveling from the Bay Area to Senegal to letters in the mail uh, to email and now to WhatsApp. So I'm super lucky. That's really nice. Um, so tell me more about, um, you know, modesty and sutu. I'm, I don't want to pronounce it wrong. No, that's just fine. Um, but yeah, tell me more about what you've studied about it. Yeah, so so sutra, it, it can be glossed as discretion or modesty, um, is the central ethic organizing Senegalese social life. Um, and it is premised and on uh, this idea that to be to have like moral legitimacy in society, you need to shield aspects of intimate life from public view. Um, you know, the basic premise of you know not to air your dirty laundry in public. Um, but you know, for centuries, this has been very much intertwined um, with uh gender and gender hierarchies and so you know for a long time and still women are kind of seen as uh, the bearers of sutra and the kind of the responsibility is incumbent upon them um to protect you know themselves their families their communities um from negative perceptions and uh and they are often blamed in cases where um, this public-private boundary is to per is perceived to have been transgressed, um, and so oh, I should I should also say that um, in addition to being discretion, it's 
sutra is also a form of protection so that if you kind of maintain the social contract, dividing the private from the public, one can receive protection by one's community. So for example, in instances of um, sexual assault, if a woman um, refrains from naming her uh, abuser um, and protects that person uh, with sutra, um, she will, will get all kinds of community support, um, you know, monetary, even physical um, support protecting her. Uh, but in instances where someone does name their accuser, that is seen as a transgression of sutra. And so even someone who is a survivor of sexual assault, you know, she risks kind of losing that community protection uh, insured by sutra in the very moment when she needs it most. Um, and so, and, and here I'm building on the work of a lot of amazing scholars, uh, including Ivy Mills um, and Beth Packer, um, who's a sociologist. Uh, and so kind of my contribution to this is really asking how different forms of digital media usage and kind of different changing conceptions of the public and the private are shaping sutra and conversely how this cultural lens of sutra is shaping how people are um, engaging with each other online. I'm curious um, with sutra, is it something that's spoken about in Senegalese society or is it more like um, like a hidden understanding? That is an excellent question. And I think the short answer is, is both. Um, kind of as like, it, it's spoken about quite a bit um, in terms of uh, kind of the way one dresses. Because um, it's, it's not just about speech, but it's also about kind of, you know, your physical comportment. And so, you know, I remember being criticized for, you know, not dressing with sutra because I guess I was wearing a skirt that was a bit too short. And so discretion, you know, can be something that, you know, people call each other on kind of on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and uh, kind of on the new media front, it, at one of these adolescent health centers, when uh, youth were having kind of conversations about you know, new media, its possibilities, its risks, kind of collaboratively, we designed this uh, sex education module that, that they called um, Sutra and Facebook. So they kind of use the term to kind of capture something about digital privacy that, you know, that and Sutra was the best uh, way of speaking about that. Um, but some of these kind of broader historical trends is especially kind of, you know, its relation to gender inequality, that is something that's a bit, you know, below the surface. And so that's kind of, you know, I see like a role of ethnography for both kind of attending to the ways that it's spoken about directly and the ways that it might be kind of at work under the surface. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to know about the ways you're conducting your research. I mean, considering you know, um, it's on another continent. Do you spend time there? Do you have like phone call interviews with people? Is it more just um, reading things and researching online, especially since, you know, digital media is involved? Um, yeah, I'm just curious about your process. 
So I was really lucky to have done uh, the bulk of my field work before the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I was able to um, live and research in Senegal um, for cumulatively uh, over 20 months. So there was kind of a, a year of, of work and then you know subsequent follow-up visits. And so those visits, I, I mostly used ethnographic methods so that included interviews and focus groups and participant observation, and then kind of the mainstay of ethnography that is sometimes called like deep hanging out. So, you know, part of what's so wonderful about my field is that, you know, just hanging out with people sitting in their living rooms, talking, eating meals together, all of that is part of the research process because you're really just trying to get a sense of daily life. And, you know, sometimes people will share the most interesting insights, not when you're kind of sitting across from them at a table asking questions, but when, you know, people are just you know, saying like, hey, have you like seen this on Facebook? And, and you know, just daily events can open up, uh, you know, interesting things that then you can later kind of double back and integrate into a more formal interview. Um, but you're right that since digital media is, you know, a, a research topic, um, I have been able to use some, you know, digital and archival methods as well. So looking at, you know, um, public Facebook posts, and um, uh, a um, toward toward the kind of middle and end of my research, um, I started uh, studying uh, pornography as a kind of particular case of sutras transgression. Um, and so kind of publicly accessible websites were kind of crucial to, to studying that, you know, highly stigmatized topic. So, um, yeah, so a really kind of broad range of methodologies. Mm -hmm. In what ways does Sutura and the, the digital age, in what ways have they collided? And in what ways has um, Sutura changed now with social media? Yeah, so, so I would say that the continuities are kind of more apparent than the changes almost. Um, and so kind of the, the advent and really explosion of social media has kind of ignited or reanimated anxieties about sutra is erosion, this kind of erosion of, you know, this protected, you know, private sphere that, that I should say, you know, kind of in Senegal as elsewhere is always somewhat of a, of a myth. We, we like to believe that there's a kind of, you know, easily identifiable private sphere that we can, you know, tuck away, but always somewhat that's, that's a bit of a, you know, um, an idealized view. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so kind of with the, the capacity to, you know, share aspects of daily life, intimate life with broad audiences in real time, that has kind of sparked anxieties that, you know, sutra is on the decline and that people are not respecting sutra by, you know, sharing these posts um, that are too personal, too intimate, the kind of concept of oversharing, how people can now, um, you know, disseminate aspects of their personal life, their intimate life to public audiences in real time. 
Um, and so this is obviously resonant with anxieties people have elsewhere, so not, not just Senegal. Um, but uh, what I've been interested in is how um, these kind of anxieties about digital media intersects with Sutra's gender history, um, because historically kind of going back to um, the height of the Wolof caste system, um, and here I'm drawing on the work of art historian Ivy Mills, um, there has been this conflation between uh, those who challenge gender roles, who kind of aren't, uh, who, who don't um, go by the expectations for a, how a man should act or how a woman should act. There's a conflation between that kind of play with gender norms um, and indiscretion. So those who kind of don't present as uh, the normative idea of, uh, of manhood is accused of um, transgressing sutra. But then it works the other way around as well. So that if someone is perceived as speaking or acting or dressing immodestly, they are also um, framed as illegibly gendered, or you could even say as, as queer because they're outside um, of the normative gender roles of society. Um, and so, and that has kind of been part of Senegal's history for centuries and, and changed um, in all sorts of ways. And so, so today we see that these anxieties about digital media as eroding sutra are displaced onto sexually stigmatized groups, um, sexual minorities, sex workers, young women. Um, they are often accused of, you know, being indiscreet and kind of using digital media to erode sutra um, because again, kind of hearkening back to Sutra's history, you know, women are seen as the guardians of Sutra. And so, you know, when uh, the bonds of Sutra are broken, they get the most heat for it. Um, and this potentially has like quite significant consequences as, you know, they themselves are wrestling with, you know, digital security, digital privacy, um, you know, and the very real risks that that we all face um, on social media. And there are concerns among many of them that if they, you know, went to, uh, you know, pursue kind of like legal recourse, would they themselves get blamed um, if they're from one of these communities? Yeah, so I'm kind of interested in how these anxieties about digital media and sutra kind of really reanimate some of these uh, gender inequalities um, that are always changing, but have you know been with us for for a very long time. I'm wondering, based on your research, if the people um, you know in these communities and the people who are you know um, sharing things on the internet, do they are there um, people who think they're rebelling? against Sutra? Like, is it purposeful? Um, you know, is, are there any intentions to like, um, tear away at this, this ethic and this idea of modesty, or is it more just like, they're just on the internet, <laughs> you know, just like how other people are, you know? Yeah. Mostly the latter. Mostly it's like people living their lives who, 
you know, just kind of like all of us are wrestling with, you know, the kind of imbrication of the virtual in our day to day and, you know, doing things like, you know, contacting work contacts via WhatsApp or, you know, posting a photo that like seems innocuous enough to us and then, but then gets a, a negative reaction from the community. Um, I, I have seen relatively little kind of conscious rebelling against sutra and more um, just kind of negative reactions to things that, that people do in their everyday. Um, and it, it's actually been quite striking that, you know, even those who, you know, are living somewhat transgressive lives um, within kind of gender hierarchies, it is rarely kind of voiced. There are exceptions. There are people who kind of talk about how restrictive sutra is, um, but much more commonly, I see people kind of trying to align their everyday use of media with sutra um, and saying things like, you know, I do what I do. I live my life in order to support my family and be a good mother. And since again, sutra is so tied to gender norms, um, if, you know, a kind of transgressive digital practice, you know, indirectly helps one be a good mother and support one's family, that person can say, you know, I have as much sutra as anybody else. Um, because, you know, these seemingly transgressive practices actually allow me to fulfill my gendered role in, in society and my, you know, role as a kind of honorable member of the Senegalese nation. What would you say has been your biggest takeaway from your research? One of the biggest takeaways for me is that for ideas on how to design more equitable technologies and more equitable tech policy, like privacy policy, for instance, we need to look to those who experience disproportionate burdens of digital harms. Um, for example, especially uh, during the pandemic, there has been uh, great interest in telehealth or digital health um, to increase access to healthcare using mobile technologies and digital technologies. Um, but in my research from 2016 to 19, uh, I have seen um, stigmatized communities with which I work um, shy away from certain digital health programs for fear of doxing, um, that that has been an increasing problem. And so people who uh, can signal these dangers to us, um, these are really the experts who should be at the center of tech conversations. Um, I don't know if you've studied American um, media history and gender as much as you studied Senegalese uh, media history and gender, but I'm just wondering if you've seen sort of any similar trends or similarities, because I think of American social media where people share everything, you know, um, like, do you see that being a possible future for Senegalese society or do you think well yeah I'm just I'm just curious if you see any similarities yeah yeah no I think that's a wonderful question and something that I you know I'm continuing to think about as I kind of zoom out and think about the broader implications of how my of, of my work and how it you know sits within you know global contexts 
Um, you know, I, I think there, a lot of research has been done on how kind of this, you know, idea of oversharing or kind of excessive online emotion is kind of not distributed evenly. It's kind of leveled at, you know, queer people, uh, people of color, people whose kind of presence in digital space, just like presence in public space, is kind of always already marked. Um, so that kind of, so like in Senegal, anxieties about, you know, excessive connectivity, excessive sharing, um, those accusations are leveled at particular members of society in ways that kind of reflect and reinscribe um, systemic inequalities. Um, and as kind of an addendum, I've lately been really inspired by uh, the work of um, some scholar activists uh, studying, working with, working as um, sex workers in, in the US and, and elsewhere. So I'm thinking of um, uh, this working group collective Decoding Stigma and another um, organization, Hacking Hustling. And they make the this really good point that, you know, sex workers like other sexually stigmatized groups often bear the brunt of, you know, digital surveillance, deplatforming, doxing, and as such are really important voices in conversations about making tech more equitable, both kind of on the technology design front and on the policy front, um, but often they're left out of those conversations. And so these collectives are, you know, trying to elevate those voices and kind of frame them as, you know, architects of more equitable technology. And, and that has been really inspiring for me and gotten me to realize too, that some of my interlocutors who kind of are always accused of lacking sutra for how they use digital media and are, you know, who suffer the risks of, you know, digital exposure and harassment, that they really too are important voices in kind of envisioning a better tech future. Um, and so I'm currently actually thinking about ways that I might be able to connect those activists, especially some of my interlocutors who want to kind of reach out and talk to international audiences while, of course, remaining confidential and protecting their own sutra. Um, so as I kind of think about, you know, what's next for this research and what I kind of want a legacy to be, I think one thing I would like to do is kind of hopefully facilitate um, some of these kind of transnational connections between people who I think are doing really amazing thinking and amazing work. And on that note, what are your plans for once you graduate? Yes, that is the, the question of the hour. Um, so I'm currently in, in the throes of the job search right now. So I'm finishing my PhD in May, knock on wood. Um, and I'm applying for a mix of uh, postdocs, uh, kind of on the academic track, and then some non-academic or kind of academia, academia adjacent research jobs like at nonprofits. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of been interesting, you know, back in the day, I thought it was kind of like academia or bust. I thought kind of a university role was the best and only way to be an anthropologist, the best way to study health, best way to study media. But um, at this point, I, 
just hope to find a place where I can do research with people, um, you know, put that research in uh, a kind of broader historical context um, and hopefully stay in the Bay Area because my my family is here as well. Yeah. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? I guess I am struck with now thinking about job search, you you kind of put me in a reflective mood, um, kind of just how much, you know, one's research goals and professional goals can, can change um, over the course of a single research project. And uh, yeah, kind of if anything, I mean, it's somewhat a a bit of a cliche that like the more, you know, the more that you don't know, I feel like that's really very true. And kind of, as I reach the end of this project, I'm struck by like how much my kind of research participants know that I still don't. And so, you know, on one hand, I need to present myself as a authority and, you know, an expert, um, But also, as I was mentioning, I'm thinking like, okay, how can I, what are ways in which I can kind of step back and be kind of a facilitator or, you know, for for my research participants to to reach the audiences that they want to reach? Well, thank you so much for this lovely interview. Thank you so much, Danielle. I really enjoyed it. And we're all done. Today, we've been speaking to Juliana Friend from the Department of Anthropology. We've been talking about her research on gender, new media, and sutura in Senegal. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.